0: Open it to Matthew chapter 14, and if you need a Bible, there's a bunch of them back there. You can go grab one, or look on a neighbor. People are very neighborly here. All right, let's pray and see if I can make my voice last for a few minutes. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to study your word again, and we ask you, you would bless us, make our minds and hearts attentive to what is here for us. It's an interesting story, but there's a point to it. We ask you to help us in Christ's name, amen. Well this morning we come to the most, um, one of the most interesting, I guess you would call it side stories in the New Testament, the the execution of John the Baptist. It's fascinating because the people involved are very interesting and it's like a good drama, you know, there's uh, intricate and complex emotions involved. There's a wide variety of human weaknesses seen here, corruption, virtue, all that kind of stuff. Hollywood actually loves this gospel story. You know why? Because it's the only story in the entire New Testament that even seems slightly sensual. And so if you're making a movie about the life of Jesus, they love this part, because. it's got Salome's dance in it, so they can like stop all those serious holy stuff and just have this really lurid kind of dancing in the middle of the movie. That's the way Hollywood works, you know. There's one exception to that. It would be um, George Stevens, who was one of the great filmmakers of all time, but he made a film called um, The Greatest Story Ever Told about the life of Christ. And when it came to that scene, he totally downplayed the dance and focused on, on Herod's heart and his conscience and what was going on in him. And that's what the story's about. So that's what you want to kind of latch on to. It takes a great filmmaker to see what's really there, really there and not use it as an opportunity for sleeves. But, um, before we look at this tragic uh, tale of murder, actually, let's talk about where we are in the Gospels here. So <clears throat> if you've been with us, you know that all the way from Matthew chapter 11 through chapter 16, and we've been studying it sequentially, Uh, is about the progressive rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. We've seen whole cities reject him. We've saw his hometown reject him. The Pharisees have plotted to destroy him. Even his own family seems to question him. But beginning in chapter 14, we see the attitude um, toward Jesus from this foolish ruler in Galilee, Herod Antipas. Um, So the point Matthew's making is we're looking at the political class now, and the political class is antagonistic or growing hostile to Jesus as well. And we get a glimpse into that political culture in the first 12 verses of chapter 14. Now, the only part of this section that matches chapter 13 in terms of chronology, like we're telling a story is the first two verses, and then after that, verse three all the way to verse 12 is backstory, it's filling in why the first two verses are are occurring. Okay, so let's kind of pick it up in verse one. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So Herod Antipas, at least for a little while, believed that Jesus was John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And that's kind of a fresh take. Um, So we've been looking at all these different opinions about Jesus. This is a new one. Um, It's uh, the one thing, the one thing about Jesus you can't deny. I mean, you could sit there and deny it, but I mean, people that lived then that knew him and were aware of what was going on. The one thing they could not deny, and there's no record of all the hatred aimed at Jesus, nobody said he was a fake. You could not deny the miracles. The miracles are supernatural. It, it's not like some Benny Hinn crusade thing, you know. It's not some cheesy sideshow uh, healer guy. His miracles were spectacular, amazing. The healings were, um, you know, when you have a withered limb that's never been used and suddenly it's back to full strength. You can't fake that. You know, when a person's been blind from birth and suddenly they can see, you can't fake that. All those kinds of healings he did were just overwhelmingly unique. You know, when you go to a healing crusade nowadays, they actually have somebody to check you out and make sure you're not too ill so you won't get up on stage. But uh, that's not the case with the miracles of Jesus. You simply couldn't deny them. It's a reality that has to be dealt with. Um that he can do those things. So you had to explain them if you didn't like him or if you were opposed to him. The Pharisees had their explanation. We saw that in chapter 12. What was their explanation? I mean, they're miraculous. You can't question it. So what did the Pharisees who hated Jesus say? He said Jesus, they said Jesus is satanic. It's, it is miraculous, but it's coming from the dark side. Uh, chapter 12, verse 23, it says, all the crowds were amazed. They were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he, son of David being the Messiah. And the Pharisees, when they heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So they said it's supernatural, but evil. But Herod's take is very unique. It's unique because it's personal. I mean, John was dead, and Herod had, had him killed. So um, things are going on in his mind, being a superstitious kind of person and a foolish person. When this supernatural man arri- arrives on the scene, he, he connects it to himself and what he did that he still has feelings about. He's frightened, so he's trying to figure it out. So he thinks Jesus is John come back. They were cousins. So yeah, it's really crazy, it's outlandish. But again, the miracles had to be explained and he is interpreting them through his own experience and fears, so he's very frightened. And I think that fear might be coming from something like guilt on his part for what he did. So now notice verse three, it begins with the the word um, for. That word uh, ties in all that follows along is the backstory there the strange relationship between Herod Antipas and John the Baptist. That whole relationship between them is really fascinating. They were not exactly enemies, although truth and morals put them on opposite sides from each other. It was other factors that actually led into the decision to put John to death. It wasn't something Herod wanted to do. So who was Herod Antipas? Let's talk about him a little bit. Interesting person. You've got to distinguish him. I know there's a lot of Herods running around in the New Testament. You've got to get them sorted out, okay? So there's Herod the Great, there's Herod Antipas, there's Herod Agrippa. Well, Herod the Great, he's not Herod the Great. Herod the Great was great. He wasn't, he wasn't good, but he was great. I mean, he was a, a great man. He was a world mover. Herod the Great was a friend of emperors, and um, emperors of Rome, and he held sway over a vast territory, a large domain. He was a great builder, including the great temple in Jerusalem, which was being constructed as Jesus grew up and still wasn't finished even when Jesus uh, was there in his last uh, days. But it was a magnificent temple, it was one of the great wonders of the ancient world, it was fantastic. And, and he built that, Herod the Great. Herod was also a, a famous murderer He ordered the deaths of thousands of people on whims. Anybody he thought threatened him in any way, shape, or form were dead, and usually their families along with them. That's why it's not surprising that he's the guy that ordered the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem. People say, well, how could somebody do that? He did that like every couple weeks or something like that. Anything he thought was a threat. So when he found out, hey, some people actually believe the king of Israel is being born in this little Bethlehem. So if we kill all the children there, uh, we've solved our problem. No threat to me, right? So that's what he did. That was totally normal for him. He killed members of his own family uh, he thought might be a threat. So that was the father. That was then. Now we're talking about this Herod, Herod Antipas. He's a son, one of many sons who vied for power when Herod the Great died. And Rome looked at that Parcel of children, boys, and they said, "None of these guys are great. None of them are worthy of being um, taking the place of Herod the Great." So Rome decided that they would split up the domain of Herod the Great and parcel it out in little pieces to the boys. So that's what that's what happened. And Antipas received Galilee and an area called Perea, which is a fairly small area on the. Um, other side of the Jordan River, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So that was it. And he was called a king. He was called a tetrarch. And a tetrarch means like a fourth, you know. You get, you get a little fourth of a section there. A fourth part. So it's not a very grand title. But his power was real enough. Over that fourth section of his father's kingdom, he did exercise absolute power, as uh, dictators did, kings did in those days. Technically, he wasn't a king, but he had those same kind of powers. And he, he held that position for four decades. So he, he, about four B.C. is when he started, and he held that position until about A.D. 39. It's a long time to reign, so he was used to having things his way in his territory. He wasn't Jewish. His, his father was an Idumean, and his, his mother, Malthrese, she was a Samaritan. But for him... Things went pretty well. Things were pretty normal in the world of petty rulers until um, Herod Antipas did a very bad thing. And what he did was he went to visit his brother, half-brother, Herod Philip. That's another Herod, Herod Philip, who was another son of Herod the Great by a different wife. And Herod Philip was a Tetrarch too. He had his fourth. So he was a Tetrarch. His kingdom was on the east side of the Jordan River but a little more north and it kind of extended into Syria, kind of that direction. Um, And Antipas visited Philip and there he became completely enamored with Philip's wife, Herodias. She was a great beauty and she was the granddaughter of Herod the Great so both Philip and Antipas were half uncles of Herodias but Philip had married her so Herod Antipas, having seen far too many Disney movies when he was a child, <laughs> believed that um, you should follow your heart. So um, he fell in love with Herodias and, and she'd probably seen the same films because she fell in love with him and she was following her heart instead of her vows. And um, they carried on this relationship and Herodias did something women weren't allowed to do, she divorced her husband. Uh, Husbands could divorce wives in in that part of the world, but wives couldn't divorce their husbands, but she did. She just left poor um, Herod Philip and went home with Herod Antipas, you know? The problem was, Antipas was already married too. Um, He had, uh, Phasaelus was his wife, and so Herod, when he got home, he uh, sent Phasaelus back home to her daddy Her daddy was an Arab that lived in Nabatea, which wasn't too far, sort of the southwest of Israel. And her daddy wasn't very happy about that. And her daddy wasn't just some guy sitting in a tent. He was the king of Nabatea. So having his daughter so horribly insulted, he raised an army and attacked Herod Antipas for putting away his daughter as um, a wife. So... Herod Antipas, he raises an army too and sends it out there after that army that's coming his way and his army, Herod Antipas, the uh, adulterer's army, gets totally creamed by um, the Nabataean army. So he's pretty desperate, so he reaches out to Rome and he says, help! And the Romans come in and say, boys, stop it! (laughs) Send your armies home, we're done. Just forget this whole thing, put it away. This kind of stuff happens all the time. It certainly happens in Rome all the time emperors trading wives and stuff. So they do, they stop the fight and um, Herod and uh, he's back in his throne, he's got his new wife Herodias. Now, so if if you have nothing else to do this week, you might wanna just try to sit and count the commandments that Herod Herod Antipas broke um, in this whole affair here, coveting, stealing, adultery, uh, and you can throw in incest too actually according to biblical law in terms of this relationship. Well, it might have worked out okay for him, at least in the short, this world sort of term, like it might have gone on all right for him, except he ruled at a time when in the providence of God who rules all things, the creator and judge of the world decided that during his reign is the time that Jesus Christ was gonna come into the world, that the word would become flesh and speak to the world and offer up his sinless life for the sins of mankind. And it was gonna be under that guy's watch that these things were gonna be happening. So um, that kind of interferes with his happiness factor here. So that was the time for the greatest miracle of all, which is Christ coming into the world, the birth of God's Son as the savior of men. So his coming, the Old Testament foretold, as we read earlier today in our service, his coming would be heralded by a great prophet like Elijah. And that was John the Baptist. And, and Jesus himself confirmed back in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, he said, if you are willing to accept it, in other words, if they accept the kingdom, if they accept Christ, he said, John is Elijah who was to come. If, if, of course they didn't. So it's gonna happen again someday. So the first true prophet in 400 years comes in the person of John, to proclaim the coming of the kingdom and call people to repent in anticipation of the king's coming. Matthew chapter three verse two, John's message was, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And John was a firebrand. He was a man that drew people to him. He had great courage. He told it like it is. People flocked to him by the tens of thousands to hear him out in the wilderness. And because of his nature and his integrity and his courage, it meant that if the king was in gross sin, John said something about it. He pointed it out. He told it like it is. So one day, as John was about his business of proclamation, some soldiers showed up, down at the Jordan River, wherever he was, and shackled him and led him off to one of Herod's fortress prisons where he was put in a dungeon. Verse three, for when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Not lawful. There's no immunity in God's world for kings. You don't get any kind of dispensation for having power over people to do what's wrong. Kings or people who would call themselves the elites in our culture, they hate to be reminded of that. They hate it. Uh, Remember how our, our current president said he doesn't remember ever asking God for forgiveness? I mean, that is a common belief shared amongst people that are in high places in our culture, in the entertainment world, the academic world, the political world, people in power or very high station in life, easily come to believe that God's laws don't apply to them. And um, sometimes they believe even man's laws don't apply to them. But that's a very common thing. And it was, of course, true in the ancient world when these guys were truly had the power of life and death over anybody in their kingdom. So John the Baptist isn't having any of that kind of stuff. You know, his mission is to call people to repentance and... All people are in need of repentance, from the highest to the lowest. Every human being is in need of that because we're all sinners by, by nature and action. So high or low, everyone. Most people who don't know the Lord hate to be criticized or called into account for their sin. And the first thing that jumps out of their mind is actually they quote Jesus, right? They don't quote him all the way, but they do quote these two words, judge not, right? So um, that's not everything Jesus said about that subject, but uh, we won't do that sermon again right now. <laughs> Believers are supposed to love it when they're corrected. Uh, what does Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8 say? Re- reprove a wise man and he will love you. You correct me, I'm gonna love you for it eventually. come back and correct me again later and I'll feel better about it let me think about it for a couple minutes seriously that's true though if if you're a a wise man you love to be reproved and corrected because you want to be better a wise man grows and he knows he's got weaknesses so he's willing to grow in those things Herod was not a wise man what can I say that you never see him behaving wisely. It wasn't part of his being at all. So a wise man is not against being challenged or corrected, he welcomes it, he he weighs godly counsel and he measures himself by it and he corrects himself, but Herod was not wise. And he was very angry when he heard that John was calling him out for this following his heart, as he would probably say it. Now verse five is very interesting. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he was very angry with him, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. That's almost an understatement there. They, everyone regarded John as a prophet, practically, in Israel. I mean, he was the most famous person in a very long time, a most beloved person. They really, he was a prophet of God and he was the first one in 400 years and they knew it. They saw his character and they, they heard him and they pursued him. They really believed. So even though he's a king and he has sort of absolute power, he's got to weigh his reputation with people and his relationship with his own people and think about how he wants to be viewed. You know how politicians are. So at first, he lets John live because of the multitude, because of his popularity. And although Herod Antipas was a petty tyrant who could do what he wanted, he had to weigh in all of those factors. He had to watch out, especially for uh, um, not necessarily a rising against him personally, but a lot of trouble, stirred up trouble, riots, rebellions, uh, people freaking out and complaining. His main concern may not have been for his own safety, but not even his own popularity really, but, but what Rome might think. The Romans liked to have controlled, peaceful provinces. And when they handed power to some little local guy, instead of put one of their own people in there, they expected those local guys to kind of take care of things. Even their own governors. You know, Judea was put under a procuratorship, so there was a... Judea was always stirring up trouble, so the Romans wouldn't allow a local king to be there. They put a a, a procurator or a governor there to oversee that directly. So Rome had direct power over Judea because it was stirred up too much. And if they started thinking Galilee might be stirred up too much, they might just take Herod Antipas out and put a Roman governor in there. So he didn't want that to happen, so he's got to play the crowd a little bit carefully there. All those guys feared Rome. So Herod imprisons John, but that's all. That's all he does. He throws him in a dungeon. So, and it's not mercy or goodness that makes him do that, that holds him in check. It's entirely his self-interest, right? Now, Matthew Henry says something um, that might apply here. He said a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, he said, men fear being hanged for what they do not fear being damned for. In other words, people, because they don't really think about God very much, they fear getting their neck in a noose way more than spending eternity in hell apart from God. They don't worry about that. They don't think about that. Herod's one of those kind of guys. He doesn't think about that. But he is worried about the Romans disliking him. So there's that kind of thing. So the motivation wasn't that he was pious or good, it was expediency to keep John alive. Mark, in his gospel, gives us more details about what happened in the relationship between John and Herod as time went on. He probably had never met John. John probably didn't say the things about him to his face. John never went into cities, and Herod certainly didn't go out to see John in the wilderness and get baptized in the Jordan River. So they probably met for the first time after John was arrested. That's most likely. But in, in Mark chapter six, we're given another reason for his sparing John. In Mark chapter six, verse 19. Herodias, who's that? That's his new girl, right? His new wife. Herodias had a grudge against him, against John, and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. Why couldn't she do so? Mark says, for Herod was afraid of John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So after he meets John, and they start kind of having a little bit of a relationship. And I don't know if he had John brought to him, or he'd go down to the talk to him through the bars or whatever, but they started to converse, and he didn't really get it, but he could see that John really was a holy man, and... And he liked listening to him. So he probably eventually ended inviting him up into his quarters or his area, his throne or whatever, throne room, and dialogued with John or even let John preach to him. We don't know all the details. That's all it says here. But he was afraid of John as well as the multitude as he got to know him because he believed he was a holy man. So Herod had some sense of the power behind John's life, his holy life, which he, even though a king had he's got accountability to that power too, you know. So he's starting to think in a more, I don't know if you'd call it religious way, but a superstitious way at least, right? And there may indeed be a power behind the prophet that he uh, should not offend. That's how he's thinking. So it's nothing like a conversion. I mean, he's not like repenting or anything. It's a vague sense, uh, a superstitious fear that he needs to be careful with John because he doesn't want to, get on the bad side of whatever power is behind John. So it's not, again, it's not out of piety here either, but it's a, out of his superstitious disposition. So here we learn that over time, Herod came to like him and they conversed and he enjoyed the conversations. Somehow, and it would certainly have been at Herod's request, they had this ongoing relationship. So we have this uneasy growing relationship between the king and his prisoner, and Herod's intent is to not harm him. He doesn't want to ever harm him, but he doesn't want him stirring up trouble either, so he's gonna keep him safe in in his cell somewhere. And that will keep John from speaking to the public and talking about his sins, and sort of solve all those problems, but he's not gonna hurt John to offend the powers behind him either. There's one problem with his plan. Herodias, the wife, who we already read is also angry with John, and she's not superstitious or predisposed to be merciful at all, right? He dared to humiliate her. He judged her for her sin as well. So she's a woman who works pretty hard to get what she wants, and she wants John dead. So. Poor King Herod. He's between a rock and a hard place, right? It's one of those situations. What am I going to do? He wants to keep his wife happy, Herodias happy, but he fears harming John. So what's a wicked king to do, you know? (laughs) Well, he tries to assure her that as long as John is locked up, everything's going to be okay, and he says, I'm not going to kill him, but I will keep him locked up, and you need to be happy with that. Well, whatever she said hasn't worked on him, so she isn't getting what she wants. But being a resourceful gal, his birthday is coming up. So they're gonna have a big party for his birthday. They're gonna invite everybody to the party. There's gonna be a big banquet, and she will use and appeal to her husband's depraved nature to get what she wants. So Herodias has a very pretty daughter from her first marriage, Salome, and and Salome does something quite unusual. Now, in the Roman world, it was extremely shameful for a person of rank, a person of importance, to dance in public. Dancing was for entertainment, and it was restricted to kind of low-class, performer-type people. And if Herod's court followed the Roman ways, which it probably did, because that's where they were tied into, they weren't Jewish... It would be shocking indeed to have Salome show up in, among a group of men and offer to dance for them. That would be kind of shameful, inappropriate, not, not really the, the right thing to do. So Herod, who at that banquet was probably finding his morals in the bottom of a bottle... Um, he agrees to let her dance for all of his men, you know. So she does. She does the famous dance. Now, I think Salome's performance here probably qualifies as a worldly amusement, but um, b- bewitching, and so he would be bewitched, bothered, and bewildered by her, but, um, but not totally out, out of, not like what we might think of in modern times. Um, she wasn't wearing a harem girl outfit. You know, the, you know that Hollywood invented harem girl outfits in the nineteen. 19- Teens in silent movies. Nobody wore those clothes. If you ever see that in a movie, that's an old, it's a, it's a gag. But um, it's just a way to be sleazy. There's some beautiful statuary of, of, of there's one particularly beautiful statue of a, of a woman dancer from about the third century BC. She's completely covered. It's almost like a burqa, but it's her positioning is pretty sensual, but all you can see are her eyes and her hands. It's, it's pretty interesting. It's probably more like that, but just in her pose, it's, it's a kind of a sensual dance. And so by their standards, it was kind of on the wild side, but not by our standards. It was very tame, probably. But anyway, Mark tells us who was present, Herod's lords, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. So a lot of important men are there. And everyone who's anyone is is present for this thing. And I don't know if they were shocked by it or not, but Mark tells us they were pleased by it. And Herod was the most pleased. And Herod, because he's a fool, and probably because he was drunk too, says one of the dumbest things ever uttered by human lips. I mean, really, like way up there in the list of dumb things that people say. He says to Salome, whatever you ask of me, I will give you. Up to half my kingdom. That's dumb. (laughs) And those words are found in Mark chapter 6, verse 23. Matthew, in verse 6 here, summarizes it. He says, when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. So he didn't say, you know, he's smart enough to say, up to half my kingdom, which is pretty stupid, but at least he didn't say anything you want, because... Um, that would be you might want his whole kingdom right anyway you can see there's a lot more going on here than your typical response to a, a girl dancing and a da- dancing an act in review or something this is he's really caught up with this whole thing so it wasn't one of those you are great honey can, can you find my earplugs for the music um, it wasn't one of those kind of scenes it was he was totally involved in this thing so this is seduction on her part uh, it's probably fairly subtle but it's planned it's achieved he was he um, was An idiot enough to think that it was in his honor and it was all for him and um, she's being shameless for me, wow. I mean, how stupid can you be, right? So whatever you ask, he says, and he says it in front of everybody, I'll give to you. So in Matthew 14, verse eight, having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And Mark says she added this word, immediately. Why immediately? Because he could say, "Uh, let me think about, yeah, one of these days we'll do that, you know, but anything up to half her kingdom, she wants his head immediately. He's stunned, he's trapped, he's completely outmaneuvered, whatever fantasies he was thinking about are gone out of his head, and um, the excitement's over, as those kinds of excitements always do come to an end and they're empty and um, as consuming as they are for the moment, it's gone. And uh, now he's thinking, wow, what, did I, what oh my goodness, what, what did I just say? Now he could have said something like, darling, I was wrong to make such an open-ended offer. Here's a thousand talents of gold. Thank you very much for your performance. You did a great job. Now let's find Danny the court jester and bring him out here. He could have done something like that. But he didn't do that because um, it was in front of everybody and he was humiliated. He's a vain man an image is really important to him. So what will everybody say? What if Salome makes a big scene if I don't give her up to half my kingdom when she asked for it? So verse nine says, although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. You see? It's because of what they might think. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. How many sins have been committed because somebody was afraid of what other people would say? You know? How many evil deeds are done because somebody was goaded or challenged or dared or um, put in a situation where they felt like they had to do something bad. This is a particularly deadly form of evil. The New Testament has a word for it. It's called the fear of man. The fear of man. That's something you don't ever want to be guilty of. More concerned about what people think than what God thinks. It's especially challenging in America in 2019 where groupthink and political correctness run rampant over individuality and individual thinking and commitments to higher truths. All those things are supposed to be thrown away for whatever the current fad thinking thing is, right? Whatever the mob wants. So it's really a matter of courage, isn't it? Oh, and a particular kind of courage, you know, some men can be sometimes the same man that would run out in the face of battle and take on the enemy full force and throw his life away, would be afraid later in the group of his fellow soldiers to stand up for a moral principle. That's where the fear would kick in. So, so courage comes in different ways and in different places. Moral courage is the most important kind of courage. And sometimes even very brave men lack that. Of course, Herod isn't a brave man at all in any form or capacity. But John the Baptist did have that kind of courage. The courage to speak truth and do what is right. And church history is replete with people who had that kind of courage. I'm so amazed and impressed, but not surprised because I was there and I saw it personally. But the believers in China right now are showing this kind of courage. No matter what the state does to them, how much prison time, how breaking apart their families, taking their children away, um, they're standing up for Christ and for the truth. And so there, John was a man like that, many Christians, simple people, you don't have to be a prophet to have that kind of courage, simple people, that's godly character, that's what we're talking about. Doing what's right, when everyone says it's wrong, and even great power is, exerted against you to do what's wrong. You still do the right thing. So picture this idiot king here having shot off his mouth with a foolish promise, too proud to take it back or try to reorder it it along proper lines. He could have said, darling, I I said up to half my kingdom. I didn't say commit a crime. That's not what I'm gonna do. But he didn't do that. So he murders a righteous man and condemns the innocent for vanity. For vanity's sake. So, we come back up to the top of chapter 14, verses one and two, which is months later now. So that happened earlier. And now, Herod is haunted by these ghosts of his own guilt, if you will. He fears the miracle worker, Jesus, might be John returned from the dead. And Jesus, who's his only hope for cleansing and redemption and salvation He regards as someone to be feared. And they finally do meet. Do you remember? On Good Friday in the morning, Jesus was before Pilate. Pilate said, this guy's innocent. How am I gonna get out of this thing? Jesus, he he lives in Galilee. Isn't Herod in town? Yeah, Herod's in town. Jesus, guys take Jesus over to Herod. You remember that? And Luke records Jesus before Herod Antipas. And Jesus was brought before him. Do you remember that? And Herod, he can't wait. Because his, his attitude's kinda changed. Now he sees Jesus bound and he knows he's not dangerous so he says, do me a miracle. Make something happen. I wanna see a miracle from you. And the scripture is really clear. Jesus doesn't say one word to him. He's dead silent, which is really interesting. Jesus talks to Pilate a lot, they have conversations. He won't say a word to Herod, why not? Because it doesn't, the proverb says, don't bother telling a fool what's wrong with him. So Herod in disgust sends him back to Pilate but dresses him up in fine clothing first, like royal clothing. Luke chapter 23, verse 11, it says, Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Then Herod Antipas drops out of the Bible story, except that he makes a note there, Luke does, that he and Pilate became friends from that day on, when they used to be kind of rivals. A friendship born out of murdering the Son of God. But Herod's end, we know from history, is kind of interesting. When Caligula became the emperor of Rome, Herod's brother-in-law, Herod Agrippa, that's Herodias' brother, was elevated to the status of king. And Herodias, a woman who could not bear slights, obviously, she pushed Herod Antipas to go to Rome and become a king too to get that full title, instead of being a tetrarch, a little guy. And he does what dutiful husbands do, (laughs) obedient to their wives. He goes to Rome, and Herodias' brother, who's now a true king, finds out that they're going to Rome to get that title, and he sends letters to Caligula by a fast runner, fast source, that says Herod Antipas is in league with the Parthians, Rome's worst enemy in the east, just to mess with him. So Caligula gets the letter, believes it, and takes Herod Antipas, his whole lands, away from him. He says, you're not a tetrarch at all. You're not a king. You're not anything anymore. And he sends him into exile in Gaul. That's France. That's about as far away as you can get from home in Rome, the Roman world. And Herodias, Caligula says, you can go wherever you want, but he's going to be forever in Gaul till his death. And she decides to go with him. You've got to give her credit for that. That's the end of their history on earth. Far more important, though, is to consider the verdict, not by Caligula, the emperor of Rome, but by the creator of Herod, the judge of the living and the dead, To be exiled by Caligula may have been a sad day, but Herod Antipas is gonna stand before Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead, the same person, the same person who he mocked and tormented and dressed up in robes and make an account for himself. And to be exiled by Jesus on the great day and sent away from God forever, that great day when the thoughts and the motives of men are disclosed and judged. There's a lesson there. Don't regard Jesus Christ casually. Don't be flippant about him. Don't be foolish like this little king was foolish. Don't panic at the thought of Jesus. Don't run away. Don't mock Don't push him away. He offers you reconciliation with God, which he purchased with his own blood. And his arms are wide to you, sinner. That's the reality. And a wise man runs at such an offer. Mercy before the God of heaven, freely given. Only a fool turns that away doesn't matter how far you've strayed, how bad you've been, how long you've wandered away, how dull your spirit has been to the whole thing regarding divine things, he offers peace and he offers eternal life forever. That's good news, that's why they call it gospel. Gospel means good news. So embrace Christ, don't be a Herod in your own little world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, you stood before kings and governors but we will stand before you, the true king of your creation. Help us see you as you are and help us to give you the honor and devotion that you deserve. And we thank you so much for dying for us and giving us every opportunity to be reconciled to a great and holy God. We pray in your name, our Savior. Amen.